wanted to start this morning uh, by drawing your attention to Genesis 1. It's not that we're going to stay there for the entire service, but I think especially in this cultural moment, it's important that we lay the framework and the foundation for not only how we got here, what we, what we believe, but also where we are headed. It, when God made light in Genesis 1, the Bible says He spoke to the darkness. When God made the galaxies, He spoke to the sky. When God made seas and dry land and He separated them, He spoke to the earth. But when God made man, He spoke to Himself. For the scriptures say in Genesis 1 and in verse 26, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness and let him have dominion. So God created man in his own image, the image of God. And he made them male and female. Not society, not culture, not constructs, not politics, not philosophy, not Plato. No, God made them in His image, both male and female. And when God starts talking to Himself, watch out! Something unstoppable is about to be started. See, everything in creation was a result of His voice. But only one thing in all of creation carried his image, and that was mankind. It's the most basic function of our Christian belief and identity. There was a beginning, there is an intelligent designer, and God alone holds the blueprint for the human experience. And what does it mean to be made in the image of God, or in the Latin, the Imago Dei? It means like God... You were created with the ability to reason and choose. Like God, you were created with a conscience and a moral compass. Like God, you were created for fellowship and connection because everything in creation God said was good except for man to be alone. See, we are image bearers. We are not image makers. Which means this, we bear the image of God. We don't make up the image of God. We don't have permission to tell God who He is, but He has the authority to tell us who we are. In 1 Corinthians 11, it says, Man is the image and the glory of the Lord. In Colossians 3, it says, Your new nature is seated in the image of its creator. In James 3, it says, Mankind is made in the likeness of God. And see, when you get saved, you start the process of becoming by grace what God is by nature. And this process is called theosis. It's the transformative process by which we come into likeness and union with God. See, He is righteous by nature. Therefore, we are becoming righteous by grace. He is holy by nature. Therefore, we are becoming holy by grace. He is good, and He is kind, and He is long-suffering by His nature. Therefore, you and I, we are becoming good, kind, and long-suffering by His grace. But I can't become like Him until I am be willing to be emptied of me. You'll meet a lot of people in this life 
whose identities have been distorted by sin. But you won't ever meet a person who wasn't made in the image of the Almighty. And when Jesus meets the woman at the well in John 4, he engages her in holy dialogue, helping uncover the image that she carries deep down inside of her. Oh, it's been distorted by five failed marriages, but somewhere underneath the pain and the trauma of her past failed relationships, there is an image that was waiting to be uncovered. When Jesus calls Zacchaeus down from the sycamore tree in Luke 19, he engages with a man over dinner in a living room, helping uncover the image that he carries deep down inside of him. Oh, it's been distorted by cheating and stealing and lying and extorting, but somewhere underneath the pain and the abuse of his poverty, there is an image waiting to be uncovered. See, the process of evangelism is helping uncover the image that lays buried beneath the surface of someone's abuse, pain, trauma, and abandonment. Do you know that it doesn't take faith to call out somebody's dirt? Everybody has it. Everybody has their life and their trauma and their drama that lays evident on the surface of their human experience. It doesn't take faith to see someone's sin. It doesn't take faith to see someone's brokenness. It doesn't take faith to see someone's confusion. It doesn't take faith to see the pain that they wrestle with because this is the most present reality and condition of the human experience. But as believers, we understand that God doesn't look on the outward. He looks on the inward. He doesn't just look at the exterior of the human circumstance. He looks at the interior and his believers who are made in his image. In like manner, we uncover the dirt of people's lives until we find the image that has laid underneath the surface the entire time. You're not your divorce. You're not your abuse. You're not your bankruptcy. You're not your brokenness. You were made in the image of an intelligent God. And somewhere underneath the dirt of your life, lays residential, the exact person that God has created you to be. And the world loves to cover up your image. But all of a sudden, when you meet a spirit-filled person who carries the heart of the Father through conversation and love and kindness, they begin to work off the layers of all of your pain And all of your purposelessness and your senselessness and your confusion and your suicidal thoughts and your depression until one day you reflect the image of the one who fearfully and wonderfully made you, who formed you in your mother's womb, who gave you a good plan and a good purpose, who from the foundations of the earth sent his one and only son to die on your behalf. It's Pride Month. And our culture today is obsessed with asking the wrong questions. The question is not, can I be gay and Christian? The question is, can I rightfully attach any adjective to my Christianity and still claim to be a follower of Yahweh? I would submit to you today that whatever word, whatever identity, whatever phrase, sin, or qualifier that comes before the word Christian actually reveals the real God that you serve. 
You can be a Christian who struggles with all sorts of things, but as soon as your struggle becomes the adjective that defines your Christianity, you have fallen into idolatry and failed to make Jesus Lord of your life. When the woman at the well gets saved, she isn't known as the divorced Christian. When Zacchaeus gets saved, he isn't known as the con artist Christian. And when you get saved, you won't be known as the sexually immoral Christian, the cheating Christian, or the greedy Christian. All you'll be known as is as a born-again Christian. The problem is our culture has made an idol out of our identities. And we have believed the lie that we can keep our identities and yet still claim to be followers of Jesus. And I'm here to tell you, no, you can't. Listen, there is something more important than being polite. The whole dang world is on fire and the church exists to sound the alarm. Our society is no different than the pagan cultures of the first century, waving their flags and marching in their parades, celebrating the confusion of children and the bondage of sin. I would submit to you today that it is the opposite of polite to tell minors they were born in the wrong body. It is never partner with a lie in order to affirm the liar. And the church is saying no. There are 8 billion people on planet earth today because in the midst of an empty garden, God had a conversation with himself and said, let us, the triune Godhead, make man in our image. As a core doctrine, Christians affirm the Trinitarian nature of God. The belief in one God made manifest in three persons, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Co-equal, co-eternal, and consubstantial. A tri-personal yet singular God who is equal in their divinity, united in their purposes, and yet distinct in their roles. Oh, we reject the heresies of the Mormon and the Jehovah's Witness cults. We echo the declaration of Deuteronomy 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. And Christians stand with the third century church father, Athanasius, the bishop of Alexandria, who said the Father is God, the Son is God, and the Holy Ghost is God. And yet they are not three gods in one person, but instead one God made manifest in three persons. And in one sense, you are triune as well, for you have three parts. You have a soul in a body with a spirit, distinct yet united within the human experience. Now, I don't know about you, but the older I get, the more I realize how much I have begun to talk to myself. And that's not nearly as dangerous as when you start to realize you've been arguing with yourself as well. But see, all throughout the scriptures, the God of the universe hosts holy conversation within himself. And in doing so, it reveals the heart of God for all of humanity. And maybe the most profound example of this comes from John 17, where Jesus is offering a private prayer to the Father. It's not recorded in any of the other Gospels, but John, because he is the closest follower of Jesus, likely follows him to a deserted place, eavesdrops, and writes down the prayer that Jesus prays. It's the prayer that happens right before the Garden of Gethsemane. 
is the prayer that will launch the beginning of Passion Week, the betrayal of Christ, his crucifixion, and eventually his resurrection. Theologians refer to it as the high priestly prayer. Spurgeon said it like this, it was the pouring out of Christ's soul prior to him being poured out unto death. And in John 17, we get a front row seat to the prayer diary of Jesus as he expresses his heart to the Father. And in John 17, starting in verse one, the Bible says this, now Jesus spoke these words. He lifted up his eyes to heaven. He said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that your son may glorify you. For you have granted him authority over all people that he might give eternal life to all those who you have given him. Now this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. In the Old Testament, the word glory meant weight. In the New Testament, the word glory, it means to shine. So when the Bible speaks of glory, it is happening at the linguistic intersection between the weight of reverence and the shine of brilliance. Christ empties himself of divine prerogative when he comes to earth. Therefore, John 17 is a prayer of reunion. Father, the hour has come. It has now arrived. May the world see the reverence and the brilliance of who I am, that they may worship the Father above and be convinced that you sent me. Do you know why God pours his glory out on the church? So that we would know him, the only true God in Jesus Christ who he has sent. When we are asking for the glory of God to fill our lives and to fill this church, we are asking for the revelation of the Father to be made manifest in the lives of the people who gather in this building that you would be utterly convinced. Jesus is the pearl of great price. Jesus is the treasure hidden in the field. And he alone is worthy to receive worship and praise. And it is worthwhile to give your entire life to him. A church without glory is like a car without oil. A Christian without glory is like a lamp without light. The glory of God is the reality of his presence that takes you from head knowledge to heart experience. No, we aren't following Jesus because of just theological realities, but instead because he has captured our hearts and transformed even our most deeply held desires. And there's a reason why we hear testimonies like this. I haven't been in church in 40 years. I've been angry at God, hurt by other Christians. I wasn't even trying to come to pursue it. I was trying to go to the restaurant. I was walking by this building. I heard music playing in the sanctuary. I stumbled into the building, mad at God, mad that I was here. But as soon as I crossed the threshold of those doors, I began to weep uncontrollably. I can't explain it. I probably look pretty foolish for doing it, but I have walked in and I sense the real presence of a real Jesus who has drawn close to a real people. And maybe this is the moment for me to lay down all of the dirt that has separated me from him and give this God a second chance in my life. Oh, it is not by power and it is not by might. It is by my spirit, saith the Lord. That's why we need an outpouring of God's glory in the church. The church is not just a container of facts. It's not just a museum of power. 
past movements. It's not just a collection of theological realities. It is the house of the living God by which his glory dwells. And watch the definition Jesus gives in verse 3. This is eternal life that they may know you. So you can have all the nicest toys. And you can have the highest income. And you can have the white picket fence, the 2.5 children, and the perfect life. But if you don't know him, my friend, it is of no eternal value what you have gained on this earth. You must know this Jesus. And watch what Jesus prays in verse 4. The private prayer of Christ continues. I have brought you glory on earth by finishing the work that you have given me to do. And how can Jesus say that he has finished the assignment before he has actually died on the cross? Because, my friend, this has always been the plan of God. Do you think that Jesus was somehow unaware that when Adam and Eve took fruit off the tree and brought sin into the world, that it would not be the plan of God one day to put himself on a tree and bring salvation back into the world. And this is why the scriptures say, for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. No, the cross wasn't joyful. The crucifixion wasn't joyful. The crown of thorns wasn't joyful. The lashes on his back wasn't joyful. The shame wasn't joyful. Then what was the joy? It was you and it was me. It was the reward of his suffering that through the sacrifice of the Son of God, many sons and daughters would come into right relationship with the Father, for we have received the spirit of adoption by which we cry out, Abba, Father. You were the joy of God. I was the joy of God. This church was the joy of God. He saw this moment when he was on the cross. He saw your life when he was on the cross. He saw every moment of your painful journey while he was on the cross. And he said, it is my great joy to give my life for theirs that by my stripes they could be healed and by my blood they could be forgiven. That's why we celebrate communion. The cross is the foolishness to the world but to us who are being saved it is the power of God you were the joy and it was set before him and Jesus tells the father I have brought you glory by finishing this work and here's the reality friend you bring glory to the father by finishing the tasks that he's given you as well. That's why you must not give up or grow weary in well-doing, for we bring glory to the Father the same exact way, by fighting the good fight, by finishing the, the, the race, and by keeping the faith. Now watch what Jesus says in verse 6. It gets interesting. He says, I have manifested your name to the men. One translation says, I have revealed your name to the men you have given me. Now I pray for them. I don't pray for the world, but for those who you have given me, for they are yours. I've given them your word. The world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. But I do not pray that you would take them out of the world, 
but instead that you should keep them safe from the evil one while they are in this world. I want you to notice the three things that Christ has done on your behalf. Number one, he has revealed to you the Father. Number two, not only has he prayed for you, he continues to make intercession on your behalf. And number three, he has given us his word. And Jesus, in his prayer to the Father, says, and I recognize the world will hate them because they are not of it. See, some Christians, they go their entire lives never facing friction because they have become convinced that the quickest path towards an easy life is to look no different than the world around them. But friend, we are a part of a countercultural faith. And we are not bowing to the pronoun police. We are not waving the flag of depravity. We are not okay with Babylon discipling our kids. We are not shutting our doors because the government decided it gets to run the church. We are born from above. We are ambassadors of a different kingdom. And if catching flack is the price of being a kingdom person, then sign me up because we are not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ for it is the power of God unto salvation. Now being hated is part of the job. Being slandered is part of the job. Being despised is part of the job. No, we're not intentionally trying to be disliked, but we recognize if we're going to follow in the footsteps of this Jesus, then blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And in verse 22 of the private prayer of Jesus, that I'm so thankful the apostle John eavesdropped in on, to write for us today. In verse 22, the entire paradigm shifts. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. I in them and you in me so that they may be brought to complete unity, then the world will know that you have sent me and you have loved them even as you have loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you gave me may be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory which you have given me, for you loved me before the foundations of the world. See, most Christians are cool with John 17 until they reach verse 22, because in this verse, our theology must have a shift in its paradigm. For Jesus says to the Father, I have given them the glory that you gave me. See, in our Western context, when we hear the word glory, we think about it like taking the credit for the win at the end of the game. But when Jesus talks about glory, he is talking about his presence that animates our lives and causes us to operate in a reverential weight that makes us shine. See, God receives the most glory when his creation radiates the most glory. Our glory is not self-manufactured. It is a mirror reflecting the image of the one who fearfully and wonderfully made us. Watch what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3. He says, therefore, since we have such a hope, we are very bold. No, we are not like Moses 
who would put a veil over his face to prevent the Israelites from seeing the end of what was passing away. No, we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, we are being transformed into that same image from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. See, when your business thrives, it's a reflection of glory. When your family prospers, it's a reflection of glory. When all hell breaks loose against you and you don't lose your faith, it's a reflection of glory. No, you're not just a broken down, busted up, wretched sinner, barely saved by grace. You are a shining light set on a hill for all men to see. And you, my friend, radiate the glory of the Most High God. And what is the purpose of God putting his glory on our lives and in his church. The purpose of glory is that we would be brought into unity because only a united church can heal a divided nation because united pagans are more powerful than divided Christians. 90% of my work as a pastor is getting the church on the same page getting the staff on the same page, getting the volunteers on the same page. Why? Because division saps glory, but unity reveals glory. And watch how Jesus ends this prayer. Father, I desire. See, friend, the God who has everything desires something, and it's you. That they would be with me and that they may behold my glory. Father, I desire. When the church radiates the glory and the presence of King Jesus, it brings honor and glory to the Father above. It fulfills the desire of Jesus. His last publicly recorded prayer. The last thing he'll say before beginning the worst week any human has ever experienced. And Jesus' prayer is for you and it's for me. Not just that we would behold his glory, but that we would become his glory. And that in doing so, when the world looks at the church... And when the world looks at your life and when they peer in with interest to our worship and when they get hit by a sermon clip that goes viral and when they see the church operating as the hands and feet of Jesus extended into this community, they're not just impacted by our social service. What they are reverberating with is the overflow of the glory of God that you would become a container that holds his glory, a person who is transformed into his glory it is not just us saying God we know you won't share your glory with another you're not another you're his beloved and the desire of Jesus is that his glory would be on you so our prayer is that what is true by his nature would be made manifest in our lives by His grace. That the glory of God, the train of His robe, 
the eminence of his personhood, the transcendent value of his presence, the imperative of his kingdom would fill this place to overflowing. It would be the crowning achievement on your life that whatever you set your hand forth to do, not only would it prosper, but it would reflect the glory of the king that you serve. Come on, would you stand with me as we close? Listen, if, if nice churches and good Sunday service meetings could have reversed the course of this nation, we'd be in a lot better shape than we are today. It's not just about gathering people on Sunday for Christian karaoke. It's not just about coming here to applaud the good lines that the pastor preaches. We are asking that this place would be an inhabitation of the King's glory. That when people walk by, they'd get hit by the presence of King Jesus. That when people walk in this room, the dirt that has covered up their image and their identity would be washed away by his wonderful grace. That they would hear the voice of the Father saying, come, let us reason together. Though your sins were as scarlet, I can make them as white as snow. I'm the only one who can remove your sin as far as the east is from the west because I'm the only one who loved you while you were yet a sinner and took your place on the cross. No, our desire is not just to be religious entrepreneurs, but to build a house that becomes a home for the glory of the Lord, that it permeates this region and transforms the nations of the earth. This is the high call of God, which is in Christ Jesus, that the church of the living God would reflect the glory of the living God, and in doing so, bring many sons and daughters into right relationship with the Father above. Come on, would you raise your hands all across this room? We're going in by singing a chorus this morning and let us make it our prayer at the pursuit today.